And uh, we've seen a lot of stuff, but I've been executive pastor. Some of you are newer, may don't know, but I kind of behind the scenes executive pastor of this church for five and a half years. And we've really seen a lot. God has done so much, and all credit to Him. Amen. But it's the team is just that's currently there is, is just uh, there's love and uh, unity and health with the board. It's just been really awesome. And then uh, about six months ago, God started just working on my heart and Marsha's heart, just like something's coming. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're going to sing at the end of this service this song that always drives me to tears, and it's got a couple lines in it. When you call, I won't refuse. Another line, when you call, I won't delay. Mm-hmm. And every time I'd hear that, it just would galvanize my heart. It's kind of like, God, it's like you're going to call. And really not knowing what, but just a, just a short number of months ago, um, God really just downloaded on Marsha and me just the, the thought of moving in a totally different direction, surprising direction. And I'm, gonna, I'm a candidate now running for U.S. Senate in Michigan. <laughs> that wasn't an applause line, really, because we, got, we run into issues on this. And here's the thing is... Um, the way the law currently is, that you cannot, a church, a nonprofit, cannot in any way informally or formally endorse a candidate for public office, however nice that person may be. Did you guys um, hear that? Yeah. We can pray for you, though. Yeah, as individuals, you can pray. And that's, that's really what's, what you know, we're looking for, because it's, yeah. it's huge. It's absolutely huge. But you know, we talk about a tsunami across the ocean. There's a economic tsunami coming our way mm-hmm. and we have 12 kids and now we just have 20 grandkids as of this morning by the way come on it's 19 yesterday Tri- today it's 20 Tri- and, Peckman. Uh, and i <laughs> the great patriarch i tell you and i just can't just go off to florida and just see um what's coming come and uh, so we're moving in that direction and god has just downloaded this just it's just amazing he's assembled a team around us but as of Friday was my last official day at Crossroads. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's, the world's not going to come to an end. These are great people. I've loved this man from the first time I met him. And we are, we're, bond, you know, we're bonded together. My office is right near where your office is. Mm-hmm. So I may lock the door mm-hmm. if you keep bugging me too much. <laughs> no, you won't. No, I won't. <laughs> but um, that's basically what we wanted to say. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you... Um, you guys already clapped, so we don't have to stand and clap right now. But you guys don't know the beginning of this church. And I, I remember my dad went on a vacation with, with my mom, obviously. And they always go to church wherever they are on Sunday. And he said, Rod, I just got back from this, this church. And he said, it was really cool. Because there was this young pastor, uh, teaching pastor. Uh, but then there was this older man. And he said... You could just see the love between those two. And he's like, I wish that for you. And God gave that to me. <laughs> it's been awesome. <laughs> yeah, and God blessed our church with this man. So let's pray. We can't put Randy in the prayer pit because we can't. We separation of church and state here, okay? Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Randy's like, that's true. Yeah. That's part of the reason that I need to go is that I don't want to cause conflict yeah. there. The other part is it's, it's a 12-hour, 16-hour-a-day job for a year and a half. Yeah. It's a big state, and uh, I love it. I just got to tell you that it's yeah. just passion. Yeah. And so we're going for it. So yeah. for those reasons, I've got to depart, but yeah. not without incredible love, and we'll be praying, and I know you're going to go yeah. real far. So Amen. Go. And, and, you know, pray for me and pray for the church, though. We're going to replace Randy. Um, Tuesday, I'll be going in the office, and I'm going to look at that empty office. And just, there's going to be a vacuum, but it's okay. Uh, God loves crisis, and he uses crisis in a good way. Not that you're creating a crisis here, Randy, but <laughs> pray with me. God, you just provide. And we just thank you, Lord, for the provision of Randy for these years. And I just personally thank you, Lord, for a partner and a friendship and a guy who we had, we, we had each other's backs. And 
Um, I just bless you for that. I, I pray all your blessing upon him. And I thank you, God, that he is an example to us. Not that Florida is bad, but to see a man who at this stage is not running to the golf course, but he's running to Mount Everest, and he's going to go climb it because he senses your call. And so, God, as this man climbs Mount Everest, God, go with him. Take him, Lord, up that mountain. And we just pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Believe it or not, Genesis chapter 25. (laughs) I've been talking about going back to Genesis for a while. And we're finally actually going to do it today. Um, If you want a little, like, title for this next series, I'd call it The Gospel According to Jacob. Because to me, the whole Bible is gospel. And we're going to see gospel here in uh, this section as well in the life of Jacob. Now, some of you might just even ask this question, okay, why Genesis? Why do we have to go back to Genesis? Well, the more I read Scripture, the more I realize how much God just loves a story. I mean, God's Word, first and foremost, is a story. That's how He communicates to us. And I don't know if you are familiar with this book. I very rarely ever recommend a book. But this could be one of the best helpful things to read when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Maybe it's just I'm so stupid, okay? Um, But it's a children's book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Does does anybody have this? Okay. Okay. I, I love the sub, the sub phrase, every story whispers his name. And here's what uh, she says about the Bible. And of course, she's writing this to little kids like Kate. My daughter Kate just gobbles this thing up. She, they have it on CD form too, and she listens to it almost every night before she goes to bed. But this is kind of what it says right in the opening chapter. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. And they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. And then she says, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes Sometimes even on purpose. They get afraid. They run away. At times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of all the fairy tales that has come true in real life. That's the Bible. And I love how she puts this, how this story is essentially a love story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And see, right now, if you don't know your need your personal deep need for a rescuer, you're never going to love this story. You're never going to understand this story. And if you look at the world and you, you, you don't see the world's intense need for a rescuer, you're not going to love or understand this story. In fact, I think sometimes nursery rhymes say it best. And I think this describes the world we live in. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's our world. It's Humpty Dumpty. It's broken. And that's us. We are Humpty Dumpty. And the question then in light of that becomes, who's going to come? 
Is there anyone who can put Humpty Dumpty back together? And see, that's why God gives us this story. Because it shows us how the creator of this world is working now in time and space to put the world to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to say. Putting our broken lives to rights. The story of God redeeming a people for himself through whom he will redeem the world. And so, why Genesis? Because it takes the whole Bible to tell God's story. And I don't think you and I know our story that well. Now, some of you might be saying right now, well, what's the big deal about knowing the whole story? I mean, I know Jesus. You can't know Jesus and everything there is to know about Jesus if you don't know the story. Because Jesus has placed himself in this story. And so if you want to find him, this is where he is. I love that. Every little story whispers his name. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I love reading the whole Testament, because I hear the whispers of God. And that's why when I read a story like Abraham and Isaac, this is about more than just any father and son. This is about the father and the son. And I read the story of David and Goliath, and this is more than just some teenager uh, killing someone twice his size. But it's, it's, it's a picture of the ultimate David who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And, and, and all these stories in that way, they just whisper his name. But see, so many of us, when we read the Bible... We're like, okay, just tell me what to do, Bible. But that's not what the Bible first does. It's not here to first tell you what to do. What the Bible first does is it tells you who you are. So I love these questions. Who are you? You know? And what are you doing here? Do you know? Let's get real honest right now. We have a whole generation coming up right now who doesn't have a clue as to who they are. And they don't have a clue as to why they're here. And you know why that is? They've got, they got parents who don't know who they are or why they're here. And therefore their lives are defined by such things as malls, music, gadgets, I think it's summed up so well by this uh, young girl who said it this way. She said, I belong to the blank generation. And she said this with a little smirk on her face. I have no beliefs. I belong to no community, tradition, or anything like that. I'm lost in this vast, vast world. I belong nowhere. I have absolutely no identity. That describes where a lot of people are today. No community, no tradition, no beliefs, no identity. And I have to say that when I lived in Israel for four months, and this bugged me a little bit, because the Jewish people only have half the story. They don't even have the best part. But because they so take it in, every drop of what they believe is their story, and they're so passionate about living it out, I'm telling you, I saw this in the young kids. They have swagger. They do. They're confident. They walk and their little tassels are going back and forth and, 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 and they know their story. Do you? I mean, listen to what God says in Isaiah. He says, listen to me You who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you've been hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. That's the quarry from which we've been cut. And it's a rock. 
All right, let's go to it. Genesis 25. Sorry for that little pep talk. Um, Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is found on page 18. I'm going to start reading at verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled about within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was was hairy, like a hairy garment, so they named him Harry. <laughs> That's what Esau means, Harry. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the fields, as it literally reads. While Jacob was a quiet man, More literally, a whole man, a complete man, a simple man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stuff. Literally, it's... uh, Esau saying, let me have some of that Edom, Edom. It's the word for red. That is why he is called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. Make an oath. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despite his birthright. This is God's word. You can be seated. Verse 19 begins with this Hebrew word, toledot. It's a very significant word in, in the book of Genesis. 22 times you'll find this word toledot. And in translations, your translations, it's either generations of or the account of, or the story of. Now, the Greek translation of this word toledot is Genesis. Genesis is actually a Greek term for toledot. Of course, that's why it's called Genesis as a book. Here's how the toledot functions. The toledot is basically God's way of saying, within all these stories... Don't forget the larger one. See, because what the Toledot intends to do is it gets us to fix our eyes on the major story within the story. And the major story is this. It's God redeeming a people for himself through whom he's going to redeem the world. And what's interesting is God usually places a toledote right after something dark and depressing. It's as if to say, I'm still working. I'm still about the business of redeeming a people for myself through whom I'm going to redeem the world. That's why after the story of Cain killing Abel, you have the toledote of Seth. And then after the Bible describes all the wickedness that permeates the earth, there's the Toledot of Noah. Then after the flood, there is the Toledot of Shem. Then after the Tower of Babel, there is the Toledot of Abraham. 
And what God is doing with this Toledot is he's saying redemption, my redemption is going to be worked through them, through this family, through this line, my rescuer is going to come. That's why our New Testament begins with this clause. The genesis or the Toledot of Jesus Christ. And now the rescuer is finally here. So, whenever you read a narrative, I just want to lay this out. Because we read the, 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 the Bible and we don't know how to make sense of it. We don't know what to do with it. There are two questions you always have to read or ask when you read narrative. The first question you need to ask is this. What's the big picture? What is God up to in this text? Or what does this text teach me about God and what God is doing on the cosmic level to redeem a people for himself through whom he's going to redeem the world? Secondly, within the big picture, we have to know that there's a small picture. Because God is not just about redeeming the cosmos. God is changing and redeeming us. People like Jacob. And now listen to me. God isn't just redeeming them, but he's redeeming the world through them. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. See, God's people are not just saved out of the world, but God's people are saved for the world. And oh, how I want to be a part of a church that gets that. That God doesn't just save a people so he can take them out of the world, but he saves us so we can partner with him to bless the world. Change it. And see, whenever I read these, these narratives, especially these characters, I, I feel this wonderful tension. Because I, I, I look at a guy like Jacob, and I say, all right, God, how are you going to redeem a guy like this? And then, more importantly, I look at a guy like Jacob, and I say, okay, how are you actually going to redeem your world through a guy like this? And see, what we're going to see as we look at the life of Jacob is that God redeems a broken world through broken people like Jacob. And that encourages me. All right, verse 20. When I say a verse, look at it, okay? (laughs) And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel. Okay, so Isaac's 40. In fact, we didn't have time to look at the previous chapter. I was going to start there this week, but I decided not to. But it's really and actually, it's kind of a sweet little cute story. It's probably the first romantic story in the whole Bible. It's a story of how Abraham's servant goes out and looks for a wife for his son Isaac. And he finds this beautiful woman and he brings her back. And now this doesn't always show up so clearly in your English text, but when Rebecca first sees Isaac for the first time, not knowing that that's the man she's going to marry, the text says she falls off her donkey. You know, kind of like Libby when she first saw me. <laughs> oh, how I wish. And then you read a little bit further, and then it says about Isaac that he loved her. And so this is the first time you have in the Bible where it says a husband loved his wife. Now our text today says this thing goes a little bit south because Rebecca's barren. And I think to myself, okay, Isaac knows a little bit about barrenness because he's that miracle baby. I mean, his mom, Sarah, was barren until her 90th birthday. And see, what, here's what we need to know about barrenness. In those days, in the ancient world, a person's status, a person's worth, their significance was directly tied to their children and how many children they had. So I say, boy, Randy Heckman would be a pretty big deal around here if that was the case today. In fact, it's still that way in the world today, in that part of the world. 
And then I think this, okay, Isaac's sitting there, and then he's looking at his brother. Who's his brother? Please tell me you're sleeping right now, because we should know this. Ishmael. How many kids does Ishmael have? We need to know this. Ishmael's 12 sons. So I'm just thinking, okay, Isaac's probably looking at this and saying, wait, he has 12 and we're barren. Maybe he got the blessing. Maybe God's blessing went through him. But see, this is God giving us the picture again. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the mighty. He uses the small things and the tiny things of this world to shame the strong. This is always God, God's way. God loves to work through barren. Now, I love Isaac's response. In this barren situation, it says, in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. I love this about Isaac. Because now he isn't like his father. His father Abraham, who took matters into his own hands. And we know all about what happened as a result of that. Instead, he prays. He prays for his wife. Husbands. Do you pray for your wife? How often, husbands, do you spend praying for your wife? Once a week? Once a year? Several times a day? You're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Pray for your wife. Single men, start praying right now for your wife. I had a guy come alongside of me when I was in the seventh grade, and he said, Rod, right now, I challenge you every single day to start praying for your future wife. Now, I didn't do it every single day, but that was one of the best things someone told me. Because my marriage went here, mm, good, all the way down to here. In five years. Horrible. Oh, but I remembered. I prayed for this woman. For years. Pray. Do you know how long Isaac prays? Well, if you do the biblical math and you look at, well, he's 40 years old when he marries Rebecca, and then you go down to... Uh, verse 26, and he's 60 years old now when, when Rebecca gives birth to them. That's 20 years of waiting on God and praying for his wife. And then you get to verse 21, and I love this, and it says, And the Lord answered Isaac's prayer. 20 years later, but he answered it. And see, even though we like to say around here that prayer is weakness. It's weakness. It's admitting to God, I'm weak and I'm desperate. Help me. But that's precisely the point because God really only works through weakness. It's through weakness that God works his power. Prayer affects things. It changes things. That's why I'm fired up that our church is committed to prayer and that we do things like 40 days of unbroken prayer. The best thing we can be about as a church, as I said earlier, where our world is in pain, there we're praying. Now, even though God answers Isaac's prayer... All of a sudden, Rebecca's life gets miserable. Look at verse 22. And see, I think there's a point here. 
when God answers prayer, it doesn't mean all of a sudden life's going to get easy. A lot of times it gets a lot harder. It sure does for Rebecca because this war breaks out in her womb. I mean, this isn't just those normal kicks and abdominal pain that a woman gets in a pregnancy. As if I know all about that. (laughs) This is Hamas. Violence is going on within her. And it's so bad and painful. She seeks God and she says, why? In fact, the literal literal word-for-word rendering here is, 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 why, God? Why do I even exist? And so God explains to Rebecca. She basically says, your struggle is not that you have twins jostling about in you. It's much deeper than that. Two nations are within you. Two kingdoms who are in conflict with each other. Okay, now what we've done in the, in, in the story of the Bible is we've just moved from the small picture to the big picture. Because this is so much more than a mom with two twins. This is about two nations and two kingdoms. And I don't know if you remember that whole City of God series. The City of God that, that, that you could pretty much... Say the Bible is, this, is, is a tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. Well, I think you can say, say that also about these kingdoms, that the Bible is a tale of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. In fact, the first hints of these two kingdoms, I think it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. Right after Adam's sins and this whole world is sitting in this wreckage, God looks Satan in the eye and he says, you are going to crawl on the ground and you're going to eat the dust of the ground. And I take that to say, all right, we're made out of dust. From dust we came to dust we return. This guy's going to feed on the sons and daughters of Eve. And that's why he says, you know what, you're going to bruise them. You're going to bruise them. You're going to hurt them. But then he says in the next line, but from their offspring, a rescuer, a rescuer will come and he's going to crush you. He's going to crush your head. See, and then the next thing we read about after that is we read that Adam and Eve have two sons. Here come two offspring, two lines, two toledotes, two kingdoms, Cain and Abel. So we ask ourselves, okay, which one is it? God chooses Abel. It's Abel. But then the problem with that is that Cain kills Abel. See, you got the conflict. The war. Then by the time you get to the seventh generation of these two lines, or these two kingdoms, on the Cain side, you have this guy named Lamech. Does anybody know anything about Lamech? Lamech writes this little ditty. It's more like gangster rap. This is what he boasts about in this song. If someone hurts me, I get revenge on them 70 times 7. And then he says, a man wounded me, and I killed him. Even a young boy hurt me, and I killed him too. See, what the Bible wants us to see is this is what characterizes this line in this kingdom. It's about revenge. It's about looking out for me. It's about destroying my enemies. That's why when Peter asked Jesus, how, how often should I forgive someone who hurts me? Jesus says, I'll tell you, 70 times 7. Because what Jesus is doing there is he is contrasting his kingdom with the kingdom of darkness. And he's saying, my kingdom is not about revenge, 70 and 7. Mine's about forgiving someone, 70 and 7. And it's about loving your enemies. And it's about praying for those who persecute you. And it's about turning the other cheek. And so now my question to you is, I don't care if you're in church right now, what kingdom do you belong to? See, and then by the time you get to the seventh generation on the Abel Seth side, this is so cool to me at least, who do you have? You have Enoch. 
And see, what the Bible has just done in the previous chapter is it's saying this person and he died, this person and he died, this person and he died, letting us feel the effects of the fall. But then when you get to the seventh generation on the kingdom of light side of things, you get Enoch, who walked with God and was no more. In Rebekah's womb are these two kingdoms. Jacob will be called Israel. Esau's verse 30 is called Edom. And you see this conflict that wars on between these two in the Bible. I mean, this thing gets played out. Numbers 20. When God's people are ready to enter the land, they have to pass through Edom. So they nicely ask them, they say, Brother, can we pass through? We promise we will not stray from the road. We will not eat from your fields. We will not drink from your wells. Can we pass through? Edom says, don't you dare step even a foot on our property. If you do, we'll kill you. And they send their whole army out there in swords. Then throughout Israel's history, every time an invader would attack Israel, Edom would just kind of hang out on the sidelines, just kind of waiting to collect booty, rob and pillage, drag Israelites into slavery. They'd kick this dog when it was down. I mean, read the book of Obadiah, and you'll understand all that's going on in this conflict between Edom and Israel. So that by the time you get to Jesus, you have this character in the opening chapters called Herod. The Bible says he's an Edomian. Edomian is the Greek word for Edomite. And what's one of the first things we see Herod doing? Killing, butchering innocent children because he's trying to snuff out the seed. There's a battle going on. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. In fact, then you, you kind of hold Herod and Jesus next to each other and you see what a contrast these two kingdoms are. I mean, Herod essentially says, your life for me. Jesus essentially, as a king, says, no, my life I give for you. In fact, the Jews, their code name for the Romans during this time was Edom. Because when when, when Jacob eventually blesses Esau. This is what he says about Esau. Esau, you will live by the sword. And that's why when Peter pulls that sword out, Jesus says, you put that back. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You're being an Edomite. You're not living like a kingdom of light person right now. In fact, there's another piece to this, and I just want you guys to stay with me here because this is going to help us in this series, and it helps us understand our Old Testament. One of Esau's sons, who he has through a concubine, who gets a lot of biblical attention, is Amalek. From Amalek, this descendant of Esau, come the Amalekites. The Amalekites were slave traders and essentially had this reputation for being bullies because they oppressed the weak and they took advantage of the poor. In fact, we even see this in Israel's story, that when Israel first comes out of Egypt and they're in the desert and they're this, they're this vulnerable people, the Amalekites come all the way from up north, swoop all the way through the desert, and they attack Israel. They are passionate about destroying Israel. And what they do is they're not just attacking this vulnerable people, but what they do is they go to the back of the line and they attack the weak, the old, the sick, the most vulnerable of this vulnerable people. That's Amalek. And so in Deuteronomy, listen to me on this, God says this as they're about to enter the land. There's some things I want you to remember. I want you to remember Egypt, how you were slaves, and how I led you out of that land with an outstretched hand. I want you to remember your wedding day, how you stood before me at Sinai, And we entered this marriage. I want you to remember the desert and how I led you all these years. I want you to remember me. He says, I want you to remember my faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I want you to remember Sabbath, 
by keeping it holy. And then God says this, I want you to remember the Amalekites. And you're left thinking, what? Why the Amalekites? Well, look at what he says in Deuteronomy 25. I'd like to hear some pages turning. This is found on page 143. If you have a Bible like mine, this is verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all of those who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And when the Lord God gives you rest from all your enemies in the land that he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of, the, of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. See, and God never says this about Philistines or Egyptians or Assyrians or Babylonians or even Greeks and Romans, but the Amalekites, he says, remember them, remember them, and blot them out completely. And you have, you have to ask yourself, why? Why, God? Is this your heart? This is God's heart towards bullies. This is God's heart to those who oppress the least of these, who have no fear of God, who ruthlessly subjugate the weak. Blot them out. And I'll tell you how this thing gets carried through in the biblical story. 1 Samuel 15, God says, All right, Saul, I'm going to give you the honor of fulfilling Deuteronomy 25, of blotting out the Amalekites. Saul gets this great chance, but he spares too much. He even spares the king. It's because of this incident that God rejects Saul as king. God even says, I'm grieved that I made Saul as king. And ironically, the man who thrust the sword through Saul, who kills him, is Amalekite. That's why when David finds this out, he says, kill him. I'll take this even further. Centuries later, because of Saul's failure, in the book of Esther, tells a story of a near holocaust that happens to God's people. The kingdom of darkness gets so close to snuffing out the kingdom of light, and it's through the scheming of this man named Haman. In fact, there's a reason why in the 20th century, why the Jews called Hitler Haman, and they called the Nazis the Amalekites. It says this about Haman. Haman, the Agagite. We're just like, what's an Agagite? Agad is the Amalekite king who Saul spares. And this descendant of Agad almost eradicates God's people and God's seed from the face of the earth. All because Saul did not obey God. Do you feel the war that's being raged? Two nations are in your womb, Rebecca. Two peoples. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is the war that you're feeling. We're at war. Christians today that don't like that. They don't like that terminology. We're at war. There's a battle. There are two nations, there's two kingdoms. Well, now we go back to the small picture. The two boys are born. The first is Esau which, as I told you, means hairy, but his name will become Edom, which means red. So I don't know what you call the guy. You either call him hairy or you call him red. Jacob is the second born, and he comes out holding Esau's heel, which we're supposed to take from this. He's not happy about being the second born. Jacob, as a name, means supplanter or deceiver. He's already trying to supplant Esau. Okay, now let's uh, look at this little description about these two guys as they grow up. Look at verse 27. It says, the boys grow up. Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the fields, while Jacob 
was a simple man staying home among the tents. And I don't like what so many people and so many commentators want to do with this. They read this and they automatically just project their worldview onto the text and they say, okay, Esau is this man's man and Jacob is this mama's boy. Don't project your worldview on the text. Project the Bible upon the text. Because what I think this is hinting at when it says that Esau is a man of the fields, it's not saying being a man of the fields is so bad. It's not saying that hunting is so bad. And then when it says that Jacob is this simple man, he's a a shepherd. He's a Bedouin. But it has this little clause there. Living in tents. And see, what this thing is hinting at, I think, is Cain and Abel. Cain is a man of the fields. Abel is a shepherd. And see, when it says about Jacob that he is living in tents, don't take that to mean he's just a mama's boy. (laughs) What does living in tents mean? mean biblically. Come on, now we're in our New Testament. I don't just make this stuff up. Hebrews 11. I'm having fun today. I don't care if you're bored out of your minds. We are going through the Bible. Look at verse 9 of of this great chapter of the Hall of Fame of Faith. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Living in tents is the Bible's way of saying Jacob is a man of God, a man of faith. And I'll tell you what, we see this in what follows. And I'm going to wrap this thing up. Don't think I'm going to go on forever here. But Esau is out doing what he loves to do. He's hunting. This guy comes back and he's all famished. Jacob just happens to be cooking some stew. Esau absolutely must have it right now. He says it in a real carnal way in the actual Hebrew. It's like, let me just slop that, that, that red, red stuff down. It's like you have red saying, I need that red, red. And see, that's the Bible's way of almost saying you are what you eat. Or you eat what you are. I think. <laughs> but Jacob says this. I'll give you some if you sell me your birthright. So here's the question. Why does Jacob want that birthright so badly? Well, what's a birthright? You can read about this in Deuteronomy 21, but the birthright is the right of the firstborn to get a double portion of the inheritance. He gets a double portion of his father's wealth. Also with this comes a superior status and power over all the other siblings. But here's the question. Why would Jacob, who's already been described as a simple man, want the inheritance so badly? And why would Esau give it up for a bowl of stew? Well, see, ancient sources also tell us that that birthrights not only gave the firstborn extra rights and extra privileges and extra wealth. But also with that came the awesome responsibility of providing for the family, carrying on the family name, taking care of mom and dad when they got old. And in this case, the birthright is even more than material. It's spiritual. Because it included carrying on the spiritual inheritance that God gave to Grandpa Abraham. And see, this is what Jacob so badly wants. He wants God and he wants God and his promises to be worked through him. 
and in him. And this is what Esau despises. And I want to stop right here, right now. Because I think today there are so many Christians who want all the rights, privileges, and status of being in God's family. Not knowing it comes with awesome responsibility. I mean, all the stuff we learned about in Romans 8, all the blessings that we have today in Christ, our inheritance, we are sons of the Most High. That comes with awesome responsibility. And see, with God, when you forfeit the responsibility of being a child of God, you also forfeit your inheritance. Do you know what a priest was in the ancient world? A priest was was a representative or a stand-in for the king or the god. So when you met with the priest, it was as if you were meeting with the king. Because that priest was the king's hands, the king's feet, the king's face, the king's mouth, the king's heart. And what God says to his people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. In essence, what God is saying to them is that when the world sees you, it's as if they're seeing me. You are to be my hands. You are to be my feet. You are to be my mouth. You are to be my face. You are to be my heart to the world. And the world will see me and the world will know me through you. We have awesome, awesome responsibility. We have responsibility to become like God, to act like God. To love like God and not take revenge, but to forgive. To not oppress the weak, but to sacrificially lay down our life for his little ones. Because it's through us that God is showing himself to that world out there. So when we read about earthquakes, we're not like left saying, where's God in all this? The question is, where are we? And when we see hunger, and we see poverty, and we see sickness, and we see suffering, the question isn't, where's God? Where are we? See, and that's why Jesus could say, I can tell you how The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness is going to be judged. What did you do with the hungry and the sick and those imprisoned and the little ones? What kingdom do you belong to? And see, here's what Esau's life teaches us. It doesn't matter what family you've been born into. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole life. Look at Esau. His dad is Isaac. His grandpa is Billy Graham. Abraham. That's Esau. And you know what he says? I don't want that. I despise that. And Jacob, it's not that he's any better than Esau. He's a, you're going to see what a despicable sinner this guy is. But you know what Jacob is saying? I want that. I want to be a part of that. I'll end with this. I'll end with how our text ends. It says Esau despised his birthright. It means that birthright was of no value to him. And I'll tell you why. It's, 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 it's right in the text. In verse 32, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is that birthright to me? And then 34, Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank and he was happy and he got up and left. 
And see, when you put 32 and 34 together, you have eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that is the creed of hedonism. This pleasure-seeking, this live-in-the-moment, this instant gratification, this worldliness, living as if the world is all there is. <laughs> That's the creed of our world today, hedonism. And I'll tell you what, this is always an enemy of God. This is always a part of the kingdom of darkness. There's so many places I could take you. I could take you to 1 John 2, verse 17, 18, and 19, where it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But I'm going to instead take you to Philippians 3, because it says here, Paul says, I've told you before, and I'll say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. And see, if that is you, if that is me, we are enemies of God. And we are on that side of things and not this side. And see, this is Esau. His God in this moment is his stomach. His life is dictated by his passions. Passions for the moment. I mean, his name is Red. He's like that boiling pot of stew. He's aflamed with uncontrolled passion. His sport becomes his life. His appetites and desires, they control him and they rob him of the inheritance. And I'll tell you the New Testament's commentary on Esau. It's a sad one. Hebrews 12. Verse 13. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. See that no one is sexually immoral or as godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And you know why he was rejected? Because the text says, because he could not bring about no change of mind Though he sought the blessing with tears. Esau, when he realized what he did, he came back weeping, regretting what he did. But there was no metanoia. There was no repentance. See, remorse and repentance are two different things. You can cry to your blue in the face over your sin. But what God wants is change. You're going this way, he wants you to change and go this way. If you're in this kingdom, he wants you to change and go here. And see, Esau didn't just sell his birthright. Esau sold his soul for a bowl of soup. What about you? Are you forfeiting your birthright? Your spiritual inheritance? All those things we learned about in Romans 8? For a bowl of soup? For a career? For an illicit relationship? For a consuming addiction? For wasting your life in worthless pursuits? Let me end with the good news. The older brother in this story failed. This book is about another older brother who did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he became a man. He became nothing. And he died a death in order to bring you back. And if you can say today, it's me, Lord. I'm Esau. I've sold my birthright. I've compromised. I've looked at you in your gospel as of little worth. There was a man with two sons. 
Remember those words? There was a man with two sons. And one of these sons came all the way home from a far country because of the grace of God. Come home. Repent. Turn. Let's pray. God, I know we're just going to probably sing one or two songs here. But really, Lord, the repentance that you need in, in our lives, in our hearts, is not a song. It's a life. It's not what we're going to do right now. It's what we're going to do tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Friday night.